Good morning. I hope you're well. You know, one of the great things about singing and worship together and taking communion together is that we get to remind ourselves of the amazing hope that we have in Jesus. Jess's poem spoke of that same hope, and I'm also going to be speaking about hope this morning. But if you've been reading the news or watching the pictures coming out of the United States this week, you might have been finding hope hard to come by. 13 days ago, a 46-year-old black man named George Floyd was handcuffed and then murdered as he pleaded for his life. He was killed by the very people who were meant to protect him. Now his family is without a son, brother, a father. This tragedy followed the recent killings of other unarmed and defenseless African-Americans, Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor. And these are just the latest examples among thousands of others of the devastation caused by racial injustice. And these crimes were committed thousands of miles away. But the Black Lives Matter demonstrations across Scotland and in our own city of Edinburgh this weekend remind us that racial injustice isn't just an American problem. You know, we don't talk about racism much in the UK anymore. And I think many of us just think it's not really a thing here. But even the most casual look at our nation's history and the daily experiences of those from ethnic minorities tell a different story. Racism is a poison that infects every nation in the world, including our own. Today we have an opportunity to talk about it and to acknowledge it and to ask God to bring his justice and healing. Racism is is so ingrained in our culture that many of us, especially if we are in the white majority, are blind to its existence and might even see it as normal life. It's not normal. It's sin. And it's an affront to God. Like me, you've probably been deeply affected by the injustices you've seen over the past few days. But you know, we can be sure that however much we care, our God cares so much more. Over the past couple of months, we've been studying the book of Jeremiah together. And it's a book that contains a lot of God's anger and judgment. And I know that that can be difficult to read at times. But if our God did not hate injustice, he would hardly be a loving God. And this week, I've just taken such comfort in some of the passages where God tells us how much he hates evil and oppression and his determination to end it. He tells us, I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice and righteousness in the earth. For in these things, I delight, declares the Lord. But woe to him who builds his house by unrighteousness. Addressing systematic racism can seem like an overwhelming task. The question I've been asking is, how should I respond to this racial injustice? And after a lot of reflection and learning, 
this week, here are some answers that I've found really helpful. Firstly, I should grieve. I should grieve with the family of George Floyd and others who've suffered racial injustice. You know, some of the worst evil in our world happens with such regularity that we can become desensitized to it. I must never allow that to happen in my own heart. The Bible tells me to mourn with those who mourn. In Ezekiel 36, God promises that he will give us a new heart, removing our heart of stone and giving us a heart of flesh. Be soft-hearted. Allow racial injustice to affect you. Because what grieves God should grieve you. Secondly, I need to be humble. If you've grown up white in a white majority culture, this is especially for you and me. I must not assume that I know how it feels to be the victim of racial prejudice because it has never happened to me. That's what white privilege means. But sadly, most people from ethnic minorities here in the UK do experience that injustice. So be quick to listen. Be willing to learn. And when the spotlight is on racial injustice, don't be too quick to broaden the conversation out to other issues of injustice, as important as they might be. Because we care about all injustice, it frees us to care specifically about racial injustice. For many of us, this is a, a good time to reflect and repent you may be unaware of your own unconscious biases and prejudices, but God isn't. But the good news is that when I humbly ask him to show me the state of my own heart, he is more than willing. And when you turn from sinful thoughts and attitudes, he will lead you into freedom from them. Psalm 139 is a great prayer to pray at times like this. It says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Thirdly, I must speak out. If you are a follower of Jesus, you have a responsibility to speak out against racial injustice or discrimination wherever and whenever you see it and however subtle it is. And it often is subtle here in the UK. We must not ignore it because silence just allows the cycle of injustice to continue. Our God is a God of justice. And therefore, we must be a people who relentlessly pursue justice. Fourthly, let's display the unity of God's people for the world to see. Every one of us was made in the image of God. And in his church, there is neither Jew nor Greek, white nor black, African, Asian, European, American, 
For the same Lord is Lord of all, and we are all one in Christ Jesus. The gospel is for everyone, and we are called to be a church for all. I just love the diversity of our church family here at King's. But let's never take it for granted, and let's not allow ourselves to slip lazily into cliques based on our ethnic or uh, cultural identity or our language. I want to encourage you to deliberately cultivate cross-cultural and cross-ethnic friendships inside of our church and outside of it. You know, we, we can't meet together right now, but, but when we can, think about who you go out of your way to speak to on a, on a Sunday morning or at small group or, or at work. Let's take responsibility for reaching across boundaries. Fifthly, I must pray. In times of injustice in the Bible, the prophets prayed and we should do the same because prayer is powerful. It's only our God of justice who can bring real justice into our society. It's only our God of reconciliation who can heal racial divisions and bring lasting unity. We're going to pray together uh, later this morning. but I want to encourage you to spend some time praying this week and beyond, praying that the Prince of Peace would have his way in situations of racial injustice in this country and around the world. Finally, and this is going to be our focus for the rest of the morning, we must not lose hope. We, the church, are called to be a people of hope in a world of despair. Let's look at the prophet Jeremiah, who we've been focusing on in our preaching series over the past few weeks. We can learn from him what it looks like to be living a life of hope, even in the darkest circumstances. I'm going to read from Jeremiah chapter 32. The background is that Jeremiah had been warning the people of Judah for years that they must turn away from their evil ways or God would judge them. Jeremiah had been ignored and he'd been abused and nothing had changed. So God sent the Babylonian army to enact his judgment on his people. As we start this story, Jeremiah is inside the city of Jerusalem. He's been imprisoned by the king of Judah because of his message. And Jerusalem itself is under siege by the Babylonian army who will soon break through the walls destroy the city and carry its people off into exile. As I said, these are dark times. And at that moment, God speaks to Jeremiah and he asks him to do something strange. It's quite a long passage, so I'll be skipping a few bits just to try and help us see what's going on here. And just for a change, I'm going to be reading from the the New Living Translation. I think it really helps bring clarity to this story. So these are the words of Jeremiah, starting in chapter 32, verse 6. At that time, the Lord sent me a message. He said, your cousin Hanamel, son of Shalom, will come and say to you, buy my field at Anathoth. By law, you have the right to buy it before it's offered to anyone else. 
Ben, just as the Lord said he would, my cousin Hanamel came and visited me in prison. He said, please buy my field at Anathoth in the land of Benjamin. By law, you have the right to buy it before it's offered to anyone else. So buy it for yourself. Then I knew that the message I had heard was from the Lord. So I bought the field at Anathoth, paying Hanamel 17 pieces of silver for it. So God asked Jeremiah to buy a field and we may well ask why. He couldn't use it because he was in prison. And even if he had any hope of going free and getting out of prison, which he didn't, the Babylonian army, the enemy, was at that moment camping on his field. You see, Anathoth is only three miles outside of Jerusalem and the Babylonian army was surrounding the city. They'd already taken all the land surrounding it, including this field. So buying it must have seemed like the most foolish thing to do. I mean, people in Britain were hesitant just a a, a few months ago about buying houses when there was all the uncertainty around Brexit. It's no wonder that Jeremiah's cousin wanted rid of this field. So why did he buy it? He bought it as an act of faith in the promises of God for the future. You see, God's promise was that a day would come when he would restore his people to the land. As Jeremiah handed the property deeds to his scribe, he said this. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel says. Take both the sealed deed and the unsealed copy and put them into a pottery jar to preserve them for a long time. For this is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel says. Someday people will again own property here in this land and will buy and sell houses and vineyards and fields. This didn't seem possible at the time. It seemed like the end had arrived for God's people and his covenant promise with them. Disaster was literally at the gates, but Jeremiah acted in faith anyway. He still clearly had his doubts. As soon as he buys the field, he prays to God, basically saying, God, I know you can do anything, but can you really redeem this situation? Can you really bring us back from exile so that my descendants will dwell in my field again? And this is God's answer in verse 27. I am the Lord, the God of all the peoples of the world. Is anything too hard for me? I will certainly bring my people back again from all the countries where I will scatter them in my fury. I will bring them back to this very city and let them live in peace and safety. They will be my people and I will be their God. And I will give them one heart and one purpose to worship me forever for their own good and for the good of all their descendants." And I will make an everlasting covenant with them. I will never stop doing good for them. I will put a desire in their hearts to worship me and they will never leave me. I will find joy doing good for them and will faithfully and wholeheartedly replant them in this land. This promise for the future was fulfilled in part by the return of the Israelites to their land 70 years later. God did what he said he'd do. And Jeremiah's act of faith, his hope had paid off. 
But God's promise here goes way beyond that moment in Israelite history. The field that Jeremiah bought for future generations is a picture of a far greater inheritance that God promises to us. God speaks of a future of unbroken peace where sin is no more and where he will dwell with his people for eternity. In the chapters either side of this story, God makes more prophetic promises about a king who will rule with justice and peace and will atone for the sin of the people. He's talking, of course, about Jesus. 400 years after this prophecy, Jesus came. And by his death on the cross, he has purchased for us an inheritance, a future hope that is unshakable. And just to clear up any misconceptions, the Christian future hope is not some disembodied heaven where we are up in the sky, floating around, sitting on clouds, playing harps. What the New Testament describes is a new and redeemed creation. It's the kingdom of heaven where there is perfect justice and perfect peace brought to earth. In the book of Revelation in the New Testament, the Apostle John tells us what this will be like. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Right now, we look at our broken world with its evil, its racial injustice, its coronavirus, its death. And it's painful because deep down we know that it wasn't meant to be this way. But, you know, we can say with certainty that it will not always be this way. Jesus will return and make all things right. He will once and for all establish his kingdom of justice and peace that will never end. Racism and division will be no more. Elsewhere in the book of Revelation, John gives us this picture of the future. I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Don't miss who's at the center of this incredible picture of racial unity. It is the lamb. It's Jesus. He is our hope. Hope without Jesus is just wishful thinking. 
So as Christians, that is our future hope. But how should that affect us in the here and now? Well, I think we all know that what we believe about the future powerfully affects our actions in the present. Six and a half years ago, Jen and I got engaged to be married, and we had to spend most of our engagement living in separate countries, which was really tough. But we were certain that in the future, we would be married and that we'd get to be together. The anticipation of that gave us perseverance when it was difficult, when it was hard, But not just that, our future hope set the agenda for our daily actions in that in-between time. We committed to spending time together online most days, as it turned out, preparing us for this more recent season of life. We discussed and prepared for our married life together. We worked really hard on making sure that Jen had a visa so that she could come and live here legally. We even spent money putting down deposits on things for our wedding, like a band or a photographer. It wouldn't have made any sense if we just sat around wishing that we were married without doing anything about it. We were certain that we would be married in the future, and that hope shaped our actions in the present. The same was true of Jeremiah in the story that we read today. He chose for his actions to be shaped by what God said the future would hold rather than what he could see with his own eyes. The theologian Eugene Peterson put it like this, hope-determined actions participate in the future that God is bringing into being. Hope commits us to actions that connect with God's promises. If you're a Christian this morning, you can be certain of the future that God is bringing into being. History will end with his perfect kingdom of peace and justice in the new creation. But there's more. Philippians chapter 3 tells you that you are a citizen of that kingdom now. And 2 Corinthians calls us ambassadors for Christ in the present age We are a sent people, sent into this broken world to show it what our God's kingdom looks like and to bring justice and peace, the justice and peace of heaven into every situation that we face on earth. We get to invite others into that kingdom and we get to pray. Jesus invites us to pray, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. You know, the more we rejoice in our future hope, the more we dwell on it, then I think the more we will ask God to bring his kingdom to bear now. It will affect how we spend our time, our money, our resources in this life because we're convinced that this life is not all there is. It would be great, I think, to explore what that might look like for you practically in small groups this week. We know we will be with God forever, so let's seek his kingdom in the here and now. 
as we face the darkness of racial injustice, let's not despair because despair is passive. Let's not be ambivalent because ambivalence is also passive. Let's be a people of active hope in what God can do. Romans 12 verse 12 tells us to rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. And we're going to practice that now. We're going to rejoice in our future hope and we're going to pray for God's kingdom to come.